As I mentioned, I'm, I'm so glad that the older children are in the service this morning because I need you guys to help me out with something, okay? The older kids, I need you to help me out with something. Tell me, kids, kids only. Adults, mind yourselves. Kids only. Who is this? The Grinch. The Grinch, that's right. Now, now, now tell me, kids, is, is the Grinch, is he a happy guy? No. Well, how would you describe the Grinch? Mean, gr- Grinchy, yes. He, 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 he's, he's grumpy. In fact, in fact, he's so grumpy that he attempted to steal something. Do you remember that? What is it that he attempted to steal? Christmas. Remember Christmas? Yes. Remember he, he went down into Whoville and he, and he stole all the Christmas gifts decorations, the food, anything associated with Christmas. Do you remember this? Yet, a strange twist happens at the end of the story, doesn't it? Because just as the moment, remember this? When he's got all the gifts, all the goodies from Whoville, and he goes to the top of that mountain, getting ready to dump it all over so it perishes forever, something happens. Do you, remember, do you remember what he hears? What does he hear? Singing. That's right. He hears the citizens of Whoville singing. Despite having no gifts or no decorations, there they are in the middle of Whoville singing as Christmas Day dawns. And this is what it's all leading up to. And do you remember what happens? When the Grinch hears all the citizens of Whoville singing, who can tell me what happens? That's right. As, as Dr. Seuss says, and I quote, and what happened then? Well, in Whoville they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Who doesn't love a story about somebody's heart growing three sizes? Amen? The, the Grinch, the Grinch's story, it's about someone's heart expanding. Right, kids? It's about someone's heart expanding. But let me ask you this. Tell me, what does it mean to lose heart. Kids, what do we mean when, when we say don't lose heart? What are, we, what are we saying by that? What do you think, Will? Don't give up? Yeah? What else, what else do we mean when we say don't lose heart? What do you think we mean by that? Does it mean like don't lose the heart like I lost a toy and I got to go find it? Is that what we mean? I'm going to let the adults chime in here. Adults, what do we mean when we say, do not lose heart? Don't be sad? Don't grow weary? We mean, don't be discouraged, right? Don't be downcast. Don't, don't be sad. Kids and adults, have you ever felt that before? Have you ever lost heart? 
Have you ever felt discouraged? This morning we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I got to tell you, the good news is we do not have to guess as to why the Apostle Paul penned these words. You know why we don't have to guess? Because he explicitly tells us. And you know why it is he wrote Ephesians 3, 1 through 13? It's so that we, the church, would not lose heart. As we've discussed previously in our study of Ephesians, Paul, was Paul enjoying iced tea on a beach somewhere when he wrote this? No, Paul was suffering in prison when he wrote this. Think about that. The great missionary, the person who led perhaps many of the Ephesian believers to the Lord, someone they looked up to, someone maybe they count as a hero of the faith, this guy was now behind bars for proclaiming the gospel. Not only that, Ephesus was home to a great deal of pagan worship. As many, as, you, as many of you know, a great and large temple dedicated to Artemis stood in Ephesus. It literally overshadowed the city. And one could argue by any metric, in Ephesus at that time, the church seemed insignificant. Irrelevant. Not needed. Indeed, the church at that time seemed overshadowed by the vile paganism that surrounded them. And you know what those Christians in Ephesus, when Paul wrote this letter, you know what they were tempted to do in light of all this? Guess. Lose heart. Be discouraged. Be dismayed. Want to give up. And honestly, I think we would have to say that those believers are not alone in that temptation. Pastorally, I need to let you know that I have the same concern for us as a church. Do we not live in a time when, as the song says, though the wrong seems oft so strong. Are we not tempted at times to be discouraged when we see, not, not temples to Artemis, but other sinful and pagan practices idolized and celebrated around us? Are we not disheartened when we hear of the increasing mistreatment of our brothers and sisters in the Lord simply because they're wanting to live out their faith in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith, whatever else we may think about Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul clearly wants it to be understood as a way to encourage Christians not to lose heart. And do we not need this message today? I think so. So what message does Paul have 
to keep us from lacking enthusiasm or being discouraged or losing heart. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 3. That's page 977 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And to give you the context, Paul and Ephesians 2, we spent quite a time in there because of the really important truths that he's trying to hammer home. And in the second half of Ephesians 2, Paul makes very clear that by the blood of Christ, the church has become one new man. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has not only brought Jews and Gentiles together with one another, he's not only brought them together to himself, but he's made something distinct and new. It's called the church. Something new and better. So in light of this, Paul then writes this in Ephesians 3, verse 1. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read through verse 13. Paul writes, for this reason, right, the reason that in Christ there's now a new man, a new humanity, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now notice just for a moment how Paul identifies himself in these verses. He says he's a prisoner of who? This is, this is the easy answer. He's the prisoner of who? Jesus. What? A prisoner of Jesus? Humanly speaking, Paul was not Christ's prisoner. He was Nero's prisoner. Yet, yet Paul describes himself as a prisoner of who? Jesus. You see, Paul was so thoroughly biblical in his thinking that he correctly understood that his whole life, including his tiresome imprisonment, was under the lordship of Jesus. He realized he's in prison and it didn't escape Jesus' notice. Now, he's in prison because of Jesus. He's proclaiming the gospel, but he sees his whole life under the sovereignty and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 2, when Paul writes, assuming you heard it, did you see it there? He says that he's a prisoner on, on Christ's behalf. He proclaimed the gospel, assuming that you heard it. Paul's not being snooty there. It's not like, assuming that you heard it. That's not what he's saying. No, instead, Paul is simply recognizing that some of the readers of this letter may not have met him, especially the recent converts in Ephesus. You see, what, what Paul wants them to know, he, he gets to this in verse 3, is that by God's grace, a mystery was made known to him by direct revelation from God. Okay? And it's this mystery that he speaks of in the following verses. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
I'll go back to verse 3. How this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And notice what he says about this mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So here's the question we want to ask, what's this mystery? Better stated, what is it that Paul says was previously hidden, but now made known? Now, we know it cannot be that Gentiles would be saved. That, that cannot be what was hidden because that's all over the Old Testament. I mean, indeed, the Old Testament promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Indeed, Jesus himself also spoke of the inclusion of the Gentiles and commissioned his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. So what is it that has been hidden? Well, faith, what neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan. Namely, as Paul taught in the previous chapter, that the blood of Christ would make the church one new man. Yes, the Old Testament spoke of Gentiles becoming part and saved. But it did not speak of their becoming this new entity, this new thing created, this new race, as some commentators say, called the church. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles are on equal terms without distinction. And notice how clearly Paul makes this point in the verses that follow. Look at verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. This is hearkening back to chapter 2, that we're, we've been made one. The same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. And notice what he says about himself. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, you, you, might, you might miss this. I did it without reading it a couple times. But I want to point out the humility of Paul in this passage. Do you see how he refers to himself in verse 8? As several commentators have pointed out, in this verse, Paul takes the Greek word for least or smallest, and, and then he adds an ending that is impossible linguistically. So he comes up with a word that would be something like leasterist. Okay? So some think Paul is playing off his Latin name Paulus, which means little or small, so the idea here that Paul is saying about himself is, look, I'm little by name, I'm little in stature, and morally and spiritually, 
I'm littler than the least of all Christians. Paul says, look, I'm small Paul. I'm the least of these. Now, was Paul sincere? Absolutely. I mean, remember, they had once been a rabid enemy of Christians. But even more than that, he had a profound understanding of his own sin. Think of what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. Remember what he says? He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says, Of whom I am foremost. So, so hear me, Faith. In light of his own sin and God's amazing grace, Paul understood that the only appropriate attire for the Christian is to dress himself or herself in humility. In light of our sin, in light of God's amazing grace, the only appropriate attire for all Christians is to clothe ourselves in humility. In fact, notice how Paul understands his God-given purpose. Here And here what we're going to find in these verses, the truth that can keep us, the church, from losing heart. Look again at what he says there, beginning in verse 8. He says, To me, though I am the very least, the leastest of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to me, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, here's the purpose, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So in light of this, that how through the church the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known. Paul then writes these words, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This is God's good word. Well, with Christmas only a couple weeks away, Christmas music is now playing everywhere you go. And to that I say, praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. It's good to hear Christmas music. And you'll hear a variety of, of, of Christmas songs, some sacred, some not. And let me ask you again, the kids here, ask the kids if I get everything. Kids, tell me, can you name how many of Santa's reindeer can you name? You know what? It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. Because you know what? There's only one that's really, really important. There's only one reindeer that really matters. And tell me, what's his name? What's his name? Rudolph, Rudolph the what? 
the red-nosed reindeer, right? And, he, and you know why he's the only reindeer that matters? Because, listen to me, Rudolph was central to Santa's mission. Now, prior to that foggy Christmas Eve, okay, that's the only time we're going to hear me sing, by the way. Prior to that foggy Christmas Eve, listen to me, Rudolph felt rather, please hear me, insignificant and unimportant. Indeed, with his red nose, he felt like an outcast. Yet as the song makes clear, Rudolph was more important and significant than others thought. In the passage I just read, Paul does not want Christians to lose heart. As I said earlier, no matter what we take away from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul explicitly states his purpose. He doesn't want Christians to lose heart. He doesn't want them to be discouraged when it appears that evil is triumphing, is being triumphant, and the gospel is not advancing. He doesn't want us to be discouraged when it seems as if we are in the shadow of pagan and vile practices all around us. So notice what Paul says in this passage. Paul's message to believers is simply this. He's like, we could summarize in this way. Don't be discouraged. The church is significant. Don't be discouraged, Christian. Though you might feel insignificant, though it might appear the church and God's people are overshadowed by great evil, Paul says, do not lose heart. Even though I'm suffering for this very gospel, do not lose heart. The church is more significant than you might even think. Faith, the main subject of this passage is not Paul. It's the church. And the only reason why Paul speaks of his role in receiving this mystery and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is so that we, the church, would understand what God is doing in and through the church. And what verse 10 makes clear is that the church is central to God's plan. Though others might view the church as insignificant, though we at times might feel insignificant, much like Rudolph felt, much like others viewed Rudolph, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, please hear me. Spare sending me an email on Monday. I'm not saying that God is like Santa, nor am I saying that Rudolph is like the church. All I'm trying to point out is just as Rudolph was central to Santa's plan, even though when he felt he was insignificant, so too the church is central to God's. This is to say, in God's eyes, the church, us, we are essential. And I want to argue that Paul demonstrates why the church is more significant than you might think. In this text, he gives three reasons why the church is essential and therefore why we ought not to lose heart. And the first is, please note, that as the church, we illustrate God's saving power. 
This is the first reason I want to argue that Paul presents why the church is significant, more significant than you might think. Look again at verses 7 and 9. So Paul talks about how he's been called by God, he's been given this this, uh, mystery to proclaim, and he says, verse 7 of the gospel, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The church, we we illustrate You see, we showcase God's saving power. Now, sometimes I have a hard time pronouncing words. Anyone who has been at faith any length of time, this will not be news to them. In fact, there may have been, may have been, on occasion once or twice, when in my excitement while preaching, I might have, maybe, made up a word. Okay? But you know what? I find comfort knowing that I'm in good company. Because you know what? In the text we just read, we find the Apostle Paul doing the exact same thing. So, ha! Okay? <laughs> notice, notice what Paul writes there in verse 8. That, that grace was given him to preach in the, some translations have, the unsearchable riches of Christ. As several commentators have pointed out, that particular word that we translate unsearchable, it appears nowhere else outside of biblical Greek. Evidently, when Paul was thinking about the glory of Christ, he was so excited, he just made up a word. And I say, way to go, Paul. Good job. Evidently, Paul's word here, it's built on the Greek word for footprint. The construction of the word literally means not to be tracked out. That's why our translations have sometimes unsearchable. The idea is that the the riches of Christ are so great, they're immeasurable. They can't be numbered. They're incalculable. They're immense. And you know what, friend? They are. Before we go any further, I need to ask everyone here, do you know of these riches? That is, have you put your faith in Christ alone to save you? Friend, as Ephesians 2 makes clear, in your natural state, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Friend, you stand before a holy God as a sinner. And here's the deal. This isn't new information for us. All of us know that we are sinners. This is not our problem. No, our problem is we just don't think our sin deserves judgment. But it does. And the Bible goes out of its way to make this point. Our sin earns us God's just wrath. And friend, please hear me. 
This is why we need Jesus. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect obedient life we have failed to live. Then he suffered the punishment we are owed for our sin. This is what the cross of Christ is all about. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment you earned for your sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death and proving himself to be who he claimed to be, God in flesh. And friend, this is what I want you to see. Please hear me. On the cross, a great exchange took place. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment you deserve so that by faith alone in him, you can receive his perfect righteousness that he has earned. You see, this is why we call it, the Bible calls it good news. We call it good news because though we need it, Christ does all the work for us in our behalf. It's simply received by faith. And I just want to present here once a little bit more. Friend, please hear me. I want you to see what we learn from this verse. Look again there at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse, verse 9. Right before that in verse 8 where he says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Friend, please hear me. Christ never impoverishes those who put their trust in him. You never get a bad deal putting your trust in Christ, forsaking everything else, and following him. You are never impoverished. No, you receive unsearchable riches. God in Christ always immeasurably enriches those who trust him. And we say amen, right? In fact, notice what Paul says there in verse 9. He says that he was called to preach this gospel to all people. You know what that means? It means this gospel, this good news is for everyone, friend, including you. Friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. Put your faith in Christ alone. Not only to forgive you of your sins, but then to also give you Christ's perfect righteousness so you can be made fit for heaven and be accepted by God. I mean, just consider for a moment Paul, the one who wrote these words. He was once an enemy of God's people, yet God saved him. Consider also what Paul has written in verses 1 through 6. In Christ, God is saving both Jews and Gentiles. You know why the church is significant? Because it illustrates God's saving power. It, he saves sinners like you and me. He can save anyone, friend, including you. Don't delay Confess your sin and trust that Christ's work was sufficient to save you. But then second, as the church, the church is significant because we display God's manifold, wit, God's manifold wisdom. Look at verse 10 there. When he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers, and authorities in the heavenly places. 
how many of you have ring or some kind of service like it? Very good. For, for those of you who don't know, ring is a video home security system. Cameras are placed on your front door and other spots around your house so you can monitor any activity. Well, did you know over the past several years, home surveillance cameras have increased over 50%? They, they are now literally everywhere. Do you know what this means? It means no matter where you go, you are most likely being recorded. Whether this is out shopping, working out at the gym, or because of the proliferation of ring-type services, or even going for a walk in your neighborhood, all these cameras means you are, listen to me, constantly being watched. How does that make you feel? Because you know what? Those cameras aren't the only ones who are watching you. No, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in this verse, church, we are also constantly being viewed by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I agree with New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien who says that these rulers and authorities are probably both bad and good heavenly beings. It seems that the angels look on at grace and marvel. Well, the demonic forces look on and see what's happening in and through the church with fear and trembling. Now, while we have a limited knowledge of all these beings, it appears that they are not omniscient, meaning they don't know everything. They still need to learn things. The Apostle Paul seems to allude to this idea when he writes in 1 Peter 1.12 that, quote, angels desire to look into these things. The these things in 1 Peter 1 refers to the teachings of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles concerning the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Further, we can infer that God intends to make His plan known to these rulers and authorities through us, the church. You see, Faith, there is much, much more going on with the church than meets the eye. If you are part of the church, then you are part of, listen to me, a cosmic sermon that is being preached to the rulers and authorities. As John Stott has so eloquently written, he says this, he says, it is as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. And then he says this, but who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are to think of them as spectators of the drama of salvation. And then he writes this, Thus, 
the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. Do you know what this means? It means many things. But on one level, church, it means this. No act of service in this church is insignificant. Every time you set up the chairs or you set up the sound system or you teach a kids a faith class or you greet people and hand them a bulletin or you work in the nursery, every time you serve the body of Christ in obedience to Him, you're proclaiming something. You're proclaiming to the powers and principalities that God is wise. As God's workmanship, you display the wisdom of God. So Christian, take heart. Other Christians might not see or acknowledge your service, but you know who does? God and the heavenly rulers. And in your faithful Christian service, you are teaching them that Christ is worthy of our complete devotion. Indeed, you are testifying that God is so wise in how he both redeemed you and how he's conforming you into the image of his son. The church is significant. We're the only place on the planet that illustrates God's saving power, and we're also the only place that displays God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To me, that sounds like a big deal. And it's meant to. But then finally as the church, Paul also shows us that we fulfill God's eternal purpose. And I'm getting this from verse 11 when he says, this was, this is, he's referring to the church and what we're doing and what we're about. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, Notice this encouragement. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Christian, understand the church is not God's second option. The church is not an afterthought or parenthesis in God's eternal plan. No, as these verses make clear, through the person and work of Jesus, the church comes into being and fulfills God's eternal purpose. This is why pastor and author John Pastor can say, John Piper can say rather, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. Indeed, John Stott argues that based on this verse, the church is central to human history. And you know what? He's correct. The question I have for me and the question I have for us is, do we believe it? I mean, what would happen If we believed that the church is the most important institution in the world, how 
How would that change us? How would that alter our priorities? How would that impact the way we live our daily lives? If we really believed this, that the church is fulfilling God's eternal purpose, I have some ideas. Number one, I imagine it would keep us from losing heart. It would keep us from being discouraged when we see evil having its day. Why? Because we know according to God, the church will succeed. It's central to his plan. But then second, I believe it would make the gathering of God's people a priority. As I mentioned recently on Realm, I, I just, I have personally been dismayed to hear of so many churches canceling their worship service on Christmas morning. Right? It's hard not to think, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season unless Christmas falls on a Sunday. Faith of all the days that Christians ought to gather to worship Jesus at church. It should be Christmas Sunday. And I want to be clear. Are family traditions important? Yes. I love family traditions. I want to have more of them. However, as Christians, such traditions must bow the knee to the corporate worship of Christ on Sunday morning. There's plenty of time in a variety of ways we can celebrate family traditions, but the one family tradition we ought not neglect is the family tradition of God's people gathering as God's family on Sunday morning to worship Jesus Christ. Indeed, I, I think if we really understood what this passage is saying, why wouldn't we want to gather and come adore him on bended knee. Faith, the sound of everyone singing in Whoville through the Grinch's heart. Can you hear me now? Okay. The, the sound of everyone singing in Whoville grew the Grinch's heart three sizes. Faith, we have something far greater to keep us from losing heart as Christians. And that is the glorious truth that the church is significant. Indeed, it's more significant than we might think. Let us praise God that we are part of it. Let us praise Him that He has saved us and counts us as one of the redeemed. And let us see that we have a place in history that as we live out our lives in faithful obedience to him, we're proclaiming something not only to this lost and dying world, namely that God can save anyone, but also we're proclaiming something to the powers and principalities that God is wise as they look upon his workmanship. Let us be found faithful to live obedient lives to him. Let's pray.